0: Yes, I'm at uh, City and uh, University of London at uh, the Centre for Food Policy. Uh, nice to be here. Uh, thank you for coming and showing an interest in uh, this food segment of this, um, of this conference. Um, what I'm going to do is to give a, a kind of brief overview of what the main policy drivers have been of major global, give a very global perspective of major globe, uh, global food system challenges. And Sam and Amelia, who are coming after me, are going to give a much more detailed look at what those challenges are. But I will start uh, just by going over very briefly some of those challenges. We have the challenge of water, the challenge of climate change, the challenge of health, the challenge of workers in the food system, The challenge of waste, the challenge of food safety, and the challenge that I work mainly on, which is nutrition, uh, obesity and undernutrition and hunger. So as a result of all those challenges, which you'll learn more about in the next segment, the food system is not delivering. It's not doing what I believe it should, should do, which is to to give pleasure, to to give life, and to give pleasure to all of us on the planet. And I'm not the only one to think that. There are many, many people around the world who are concerned about food systems, you included, no doubt. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the global framework by which the world is working to try and deliver change in the world, has focused on food systems as a way of trying to... Uh, create change um, this is the goal two of the sustainable development goals but um, also on hunger and nutrition but also throughout the, the so-called global goals and there are many international initiatives around trying to improve food systems a question I want to address today is how did this happen how did we get to the point where the food system had so many problems associated with it The first policy driver I want to deal with is the legacy of food security policies. The history of policies on food security have all been about producing more calories. They have not been about nutrition more broadly, they have not been about health more broadly, they haven't been about environment, they haven't been about um, labour, they've been about producing more calories. The term food security was coined in 1975 at the end of the first World Food Conference. And as you can see there, it stressed very much producing more food. And this concern goes right back to the concerns of Thomas Malthus, a very well um, known thinker who wrote a lot about his concerns that food would run out because the population would increase and therefore we wouldn't have enough food. And many people since Malthus of Time have spent time trying to prove him wrong. But that was proved quite hard to do, given the number of famines and hunger um, around the world. I say in the Global South here, but it was not only in the Global South, it was also in the Global North. And partly as a result of that, we had people predicting doom, just like Malthus did. In the the 60s and the 70s, there were many people, uh, particularly in the United States, who were predicting that millions of people would starve because we would simply run out of food. And the national policy response to those concerns was twofold. The first was self-sufficiency. Between the 1940s and the 70s, the idea was was that countries should produce food for themselves. And in the post-World War II era, that took the form of subsidies and other types of producer supports in the West, such as this picture here showing the Agricultural Adjustment Act checks in the United States, with the idea that we needed to produce more food and make that food more cheaper. But it wasn't just about the fact that we needed to have cheap food so people would have enough food. There was also a broader economic context to this. And in the West, this was very much about industrialization. The idea that if you had cheap food, you could afford to pay people less. You could give people less wages. They still wouldn't starve. And by paying people less, that that freed up more capital for investment industrialization. So cheap food was a broad economic policy designed to fuel urban industrial growth. In developing countries, um, there were a range of quite different policy approaches uh, designed also to produce cheap food, often called uh, what led to what was known as the urban bias Whereas, in fact, producers were not supported, they were under-invested in um, to a significant degree, but the aim was the, che- was the same, was to produce cheap food for the urban workforce. And that was complemented very much and going on at the same time as investment in agricultural research. So the 1960s and 70s was the time of the Green Revolution. This is Norman Borlaug here, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on breeding crops so that more, there would be greater yield. And for him, it was all about producing more food to address hunger. And it's the same now. There is still a preoccupation now with producing more and more food. This is from the National Geographic magazine pointing out that crop production will need to double if we're going to feed the population. Now, this is not necessarily untrue that we need to produce enough food, enough calories to, um, to, um, to feed people. The problem is the focus on calories. The focus on staples, this is in 2012, is what the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research, the CJIR, spent on agricultural research. Dominantly, rice, maize, and wheat. And the private sector spend 45% of their entire research and development budget on one crop, which is maize or corn. So in other words, we've had policies which are focused on producing basic staples, rather than much more broadly across the food supply, which has led to this focus on calories rather than a high-quality diet. And by producing, focusing on producing more and more food, the intensification, the industrialization, this is what has led to environmental degradation. So it's not surprising that this system has been very successful in producing more calories, but has been unsuccessful in leading to a greater diversity of diet, which we know is important for good health, and is also meaning that there's lots and lots of food around to fuel overweight and obesity, which I'll be coming to next. So this was the first era, the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, where the main policy driver were policies designed to support more and more production of calories. The second policy driver, are the policies and processes of globalisation, which started to take off in the late 1970s. Now, we have to remember what globalisation was based on. A bit like production-focused policies, there was a broader economic context to globalisation. And what globalisation was about was really about saying, look, what what happened in the past was that we support production, and we just kind of hope that it reaches consumers, and um, then they won't be hungry anymore. And so it was very much production forward. What glo- people who were proponents of globalization policies said, was, well, look, that's not working. We've still got the hunger. We've still got the famines. Food still isn't reaching the people that are meant to, to access it. What we need to have is a more consumer-driven system in which we free up markets, we take the state out of the marketplace, and we allow consumers to express their demands. This is just some basic economic theory here that says that if we liberalise markets, consumers can get what they need and drive supply. So hungry people can start demanding food and the market will deliver. Wealthier people can start demanding different types of food and the market will deliver. That was the whole basis of globalisation, which isn't actually necessarily a bad idea. And just to articulate that, the original era, the the state-led era, the earlier era, the production-led era, was reliant really on consumers being passive. The globalization era was around consumers being active in their demands. And the policy phases here, and in terms of the drivers of policy, I won't go into these in any detail, I haven't got time. Some of you will be familiar with structural adjustment, which took place in developing nations, in which countries were asked to liberalize their economies in return for loans. In the 1990s, we had a whole raft of trade agreements, the General Agreement on Tariffs of Trade, establishment of the World Trade Organization, etc. cetera. And, uh, and, and in the 2000s, we've had the prolifer- uh, proliferation of bilateral trade agreements. So a tremendous number of agreements. I can't put a policy phase on our current decade. It's too complicated, but one will emerge, no doubt. So the key policy drivers here was the removal of state intervention in agriculture. So those state marketing boards, for example, that were in place in developing countries that were were removed. There was a shift in, we still have a lot of subsidies, but there were shifts in subsidies in developed countries. We have privatization, trade and financial liberalization, harmonization protection of the private sector, this was about taking the state out of food markets and making sure that the private sector had places, to, um, had the space to operate. So just to give a very specific example, just to show that the implementation of these policies was very much about very, very specific policy changes. In China, the removal of state procurement quotas, which were previously used to support the market and control the market to make sure that producers were producing enough pork was then changed to liberalize the market so that consumers could demand it or not. The same in the Philippines uh, where um, uh, there was a tax exemption with the idea that if consumers want meat, uh, why not liberalize the market? and allow different breeding stocks to come into the country, which enables higher higher breeding yields. And that just goes to show the link between the first policy driver, the policies that were designed to produce more, were then entered into the second policy driver of globalisation, which meant that the, the, the investments in producing more actually spread more widely around the world. Now, it's commonly talked about in this context about food trade. Everyone always says, oh, all of this trade of food, all of this trade of food. That has been an important outcome of the liberalisation of trade under globalisation. You have more trade, you have different types of trade, you have regional concentration of trade um, and um, regional trading patterns of trade and some very interesting patterns of specialisation. But it's far from the only one, and really the most important one, have been the reconfiguration of global supply chains, in which companies have reconfigured their supply chains through what's known as vertical integration. In other words, they have sought to control their supply chain. So this, for example, is Del Monte, the food producer, which um, now – this is from its own uh, website – which now controls its shipping, it controls ports, it adds value, it, to, um, it delivers to customers. So it's a very different type of supply chain. And this, again, Del Monte talking about itself, where it's saying there was um, once limited sourcing from a few places. We now source from, from globally. Uh, we used to use truckload shipments. Um, that with with limited distribution centres, we now have sophisticated technology for just in time. We used to charter vessels; now we own them. We used to go put everything through wholesalers; now we're going straight to retailers. And that that change in supply chains is enabled these companies to go from a very narrow product range of producing, say, pineapple, to hundreds and hundreds of products, hundreds of different types of pineapple um, alone on the market, whether, however it's cut, however it's delivered, however it's, however it's served. So basically, the liberalisation and the introduction of the private sector and supply chains has enabled them to control their supply chains much more effectively. But the dynamics are changing all the time. Um, have, I, always, I always, always ask my students this. Have you uh, anyone heard of JBS here? One, two people, three people, and one of my students there, so that's no surprise. Um, well, JBS is one of the world's most powerful companies, and yet we're still thinking of the language of Pepsi and Coke. They're very important, but these other companies are becoming much more important. JBS is a Brazilian company, and it has spread through vertical integration by buying up other companies to become one of the world's largest food companies. Um, it's a Brazilian company. It, it started buying up um, uh, companies, meat companies in the USA in 2007. I won't go... There's, there's hundreds and hundreds. It basically went on a buying spree. Uh, went to Australia in 2010, for example, and last year it arrived in the UK buying up um, chicken. So it started out as a beef company. It now owns most of the beef, pork, and chicken in the world today. It's the largest company that does that. And it's now... Um, rated, so I've uh, missed the slide off there, that um, it's now rated as one of the largest um, packaged food companies in the world. So in other words, these supply chains are getting long and they're getting complicated. So what's happened as a result of that? Well, this is quite complicated. Think about the idea of globalisation and the policies designed to drive that. What, int- what intended to happen was this idea that consumers could start demanding things from producers. What actually happened was that big industry came into the middle of the supply chain and it took the products of agriculture, which could be produced very cheaply because of what happened in the production led era under state led policy. It transformed it into all kinds of products, added value, and then had enormous incentive in trying to sell that. To consumers, so it wasn't no it wasn't about consumers driving demand. It was about the food consuming industries in the middle of the chain, starting to, um, to using the products of agriculture, adding value, and then trying to push them, push them, push them, push and push them onto consumers. No wonder we have an entire food system which is dedicated to creating obesity. That is the economics of it. It wasn't what was meant to happen, but it is what has happened. Simply cheap products at the start, uh, incentive, ability to control and add value, and then to sell them on to consumers. I wouldn't actually call that cheap food. I would say that is food which has had a lot of value added, but then branded and marketed so consumers are willing to pay more for it. That was a second policy driver. How am I doing for time? Okay, I'm going to be fine then. Third policy driver is around the fact that the the policies, the major policies that have affected our food system and are affecting our food system are not coherent. They are disconnected and incoherent. In government, in companies, in civil society organisations, everywhere, You don't have a situation where someone is saying, OK, let's look at all of those systems challenges that I outlined at the beginning. Let's look at the labour supply. Let's look at sustainability. Let's look at nutrition and health. And let's see how the food system as a whole can be designed to address those problems. In other words, we don't have what we like to call in food policy an integrated food policy. Let me give you some examples. I work a lot on um, underweight and overweight globally. And I'm very familiar with the fact that decisions that are made to try and and address underweight are not made in the same spaces as decisions about overweight. So this example here is from the World Food Programme. This is a World Food uh, Programme school feeding programme in Syria and Lebanon, which is being rolled out at the moment in the wake of the, the conflict situation. You can see here that they're holding... Muffins with basically sugar and white flour. That is a UN program. In the same region, this is actually from um, United Arab, Arab Emirates, but many, Jordan, many countries in that region, Iraq, for example, Iran, for example, is another one, and many countries in that region have national guidelines or local guidelines about what food should be served in schools. And those decisions were made by national governments, fully aware that the problem that they have in their region is that of overweight and obesity and NCDs, which is quite diabolical in the Middle East. And they've recognised it. They're starting to put some things into place. They're producing guidelines, such as the ones that you see on your right. However, the World Food Programme is not worried about obesity and non-communicable diseases. It's worried about whether people have got enough food or not in, in situations of conflict, so it's just pushing food into the place, thinking, as long as you've got enough food, it doesn't matter what it is. So it's going back to the fact that they're worried about calories, and they're in a different space than the people who are worried actually about quality of diet and healthy diets. So is it any surprise, then, that as underweight has come down, that overweight has gone up? Because they are different people making those decisions And it's the same when you start to look at industries, at the industry. The decisions that companies are making are quite different to the decisions that Alison Tedstone was talking about earlier, that Public Health England or any health department around the world is making. They are making decisions to restructure their supply chains. So, for example, with the rise of food taxes around the world, um, sugary drinks taxes around the world, What we're seeing is companies losing um, volume of carbonated soft drinks. So what are they doing in in response to that? Are they saying, oh, we're going to lose value? No, they're not. They're saying, we're going to cut our costs so we can absorb those losses. And what else are they doing? They're investing $50 billion in the last few years into facilities distribution in order in developing countries, in order to grow their markets in developing countries where there are no sugary drinks taxes, unlike the one that's going to be put into place here. And they're investing in marketing, including in other kinds of drinks, such as energy drinks, uh, which are leading to increases in consumption of these drinks relative to the carbonates which are going down. But also in governments, you look at governments around the world, that competition law and other parts of governments are allowing these things to happen uh, because they're not worried about health, they're worried about the application of, in, for example, in, in competition law, which allows these kinds of mer- emerges, it allows Pepsi to, to buy Monster Inc., the energy drink, in order that it can grow that market when carbonates are going down. And, of course, all of these decisions are being made in very different spaces to the decisions that are made by the de- departments of health and so on, on taxes, labelling, ad- advertising bans, etc. But it's also the case um, within governments. Um, and uh, this is an example from, from whiskey, It could be many other things. There, there was a, a release from the Department, uh, DEF of the Department of Environment, Environment Food and Rural Affairs recently, uh, which emphasised the importance of exporting um, British foods. And no problem with that necessarily, except when you look at what foods were talked, being talked about, a lot of them were things like cookies, So why are we saying we have our own eat well plate here, saying that we shouldn't be eating too many cookies, and yet we're quite happy to have a policy in another part of government, which is encouraging the export of cookies? So this is um, the case um, of of whiskey, where um, Scotland is is encouraged to export whiskey, um, and yet the Change for Life campaign from um, from the government um, is actually trying to discourage excessive alcohol drinking. This is an example from uh, in the international space where the World Health Organization have a clear objective in their global action plan for non-communicable diseases, where they're talking about the importance of reducing the intake of saturated fatty acids. It's one of their objectives in their global action plan on non-communicable diseases. Their friends across the way in Washington, the World Bank Group, meanwhile, is implementing policies directly aiming to encourage The uh, production of palm oil, which many of you will know, is is a major source of saturated fats, probably the major source of saturated fats, given it's in practically every food product or processed food product. So you have two perfectly legitimate examples. The World Bank trying to invest in palm oil as a way of generating growth and incomes. The the World Health Organization investing, um, um, having a policy designed to protect health and yet these two international agencies are putting into place policies in different spaces which are actually conflicting and incoherent with each other. And again, to go back to the difference between the, um, the, the government and the industry, this is, in again, an, an interesting example from Peru where you have a whole campaign, a whole social marketing campaign based on trying to encourage Peruvians to have the sort of healthy foods which are associated, some of them, but not all of them healthy by any means, but some of the, the Peruvian foods which are considered to be very nutritious and healthy. Um, but at the same time, you have a whole load of advertising. This is, just, this, this is a report from the top showing that a huge amount of advertising in Peru is for the unhealthy, um, unhealthy kind of junk foods here that the kids get when they, when they walk into school. So you have a direct clash of interests. One, in this case, a nutrition interest. Another, the economic interest, because as I explained, as a result of globalisation, the companies can take cheap ingredients, add value to them, and then even though they're relatively cheap, they're still making a lot of money from them and then selling them and marketing them to kids. But to be honest, it's not only in different spaces where we see these different types of conflicts. This is the Saatchi Advertising Agency. I'm not sure if this is um, the case now, or whether it's uh, the case only in the UK, um, just in the UK. But I know, for example, that they had at one time—I don't know whether it's still the case—the um, uh, the Change for Life campaign, the social marketing campaign in this country, designed to produce um, healthier, encourage people to eat healthier. And yet, and this is an example from Australia, the same advertising agency. Um, have also accounts which are designed to sell foods, which, frankly, when you look at this, should be consumed in moderation. So we simply don't have a kind of joined-up joined approach that we need. And this is because the policy, the governance of policy, is simply not fit for purpose in trying to encourage a, a unified understanding that there were many different types of food systems problems, and that's going to take an integrated and inclusive food policy, which I'll be talking about at the City Food Symposium on Monday. I will end there. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much Thanks for excellent talk. I suppose I want to take Chair's prerogative and ask you a couple of questions. I suppose... Um, Absolutely, policies are, there's, it's a real struggle to join policies up across governments, and what I'm kind of interested in is that universities often shout at us about that. Are your university policies joined up? Do you support the help? Can you honestly say hand in heart that City University are supporting this agenda?
0: You know, it's a good question. And I've, I've been at my university for, uh, it's almost a year now, and I'm still um, discovering just how disjointed universities are, which is um, something I'm not having been full-time in the university system. So I would say discipline-wise, we're not, we're not very good about being joined up at all. In terms of, um, and you mean that are universities putting into place healthy food policies, or are they just joined up at all? No,
1: I, that, I suppose that's what I'm really meaning. So we have universities screaming at us, Academics screaming at us about various obesity policies. Yet um, I've had a I've got a bit of a personal campaign about only speaking at conferences where they've got healthy catering. This conference was serving biscuits packed into little packs, high sugar, high, high fat biscuits. Yet we're talking about this agenda. Um, is your university sugar-free? Have you banned vending of unhealthy drinks? Are you doing your bit for the food chain? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. Yeah, no,
0: there is, um, there is at the moment a lot of work in the university that's designed to do that. We've just got a survey that's around at the moment about food. There is um, a whole section of the Students' Union dedicated to improving food, Um, So there's a lot of work that that is going on on food, but is it it enough? I wouldn't say so. For the conference that I'm organising, we're organising on Monday. Um, We are not having cookies or any refined sugar, but we are having mince pies afterwards because I really have to say, I don't think we can ban mince pies. But but what was really really interesting about doing the whole whole kind of catering for for the conference that I'm hosting on Monday is that how much it was down to my prerogative. So I had this thing about not wanting to have apples from anywhere. I wanted to have local apples, which we're having. I had to pay more for them. I have to pay more for everything. We're mainly vegan. Um, it's all going to be kind of healthy stuff. Every single thing I've ordered has had to be a special order. Nothing is the standard order. And we have Sodexo, which is the big company. So it's been an interesting learning process for me, actually, just to realise how much it is. And, of course, I'm committed to that but many people aren't. And what I would like to see is just a university-wide policy and a Sodexo-wide policy that would enable that to happen. So
1: the solution is um, a strict procurement contract by your university with Sodexo. It all comes down to...
0: It has to go across the board, because Sodexo will come back to us and say... Um, uh, we can't do it for this amount, blah, 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 and then there'll be... A whole, so, it ha- so there is a really important role for government to levelling level the playing field, to help us. Yeah, that's uh, Anyway, that's what they all say. It's not always true. Um, so, Tara
1: and I was... Oh, Tara, sorry. Carina, I would stop arguing and open it out to the floor. Yes. You,
2: you mentioned a little bit about the, the meat industry... I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on that in relation to um, the the problem that's causing in terms of water and the efficiency. When you you stress that hunger isn't the issue, however, I'm not sure you drew out the, the, the very powerful impact of the meat industry on the environment. Recent report by Chatham House, which sort of highlighted that. Thanks very much
0: sure my the people speaking next are going to be talking much more about the impact of um, of the food system on the, the actual environmental impacts themselves so I was focused on the, the policy drivers and I would argue that the um, the policy drivers have been really really important in, in, in increasing the consumption of meat and therefore the, the the subsequent environmental impacts and yet it is frequently blamed on consumers because um meat is an aspirational food, and it is, and that's a reality, and we can't ignore that reality. Um, but the fact that it's been made so cheap is in large part because of these, of these policies. But I will leave it to the people speaking after me to answer your question more fully. Thank you.
2: Hi. Um, just follow up on the last question with regards to the meat. Um, my, my thing is uh, I'm, I'm glad that the event you're doing next week is vegan because I'm a vegan myself. My only uh, reservation um, about a lot of people becoming vegan, or a lot of foods becoming vegan, is that while they are vegan, there's no emphasis or very little emphasis on organic. And um, we are told by the academics or the scientists that organic is not scientifically proven, um, even though In the 70s, it was genetic modification that pretty much destroyed farming in India. And the the big companies are ready to go back into India again. They are probably there right now. So I have reservations about, um, as I see a lot of vegans who have a diet, vegan diet, but a lot of them saying, OK, it's vegan. Doesn't really matter if there's junk or GM or chemicals or sugar. How do we address that? And how do we actually connect with the academics, whether they're from the UK or whether they're from some organic farming institute in India and actually say, we need to look at this properly, holistically. And are most of our vegetables going to be grown by one monopolized seed owned by Monsanto? It's vegan, but it's not healthy. So
0: what was the question?
2: The question was, are we going far enough in terms of food? No one's, you know, yes, it's vegan, yes, it's healthy, but is it really healthy?
0: Oh, I see, okay, and should everything be organic? I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about the food movement is that everyone is so judgmental about everybody else. So it's either got to be organic or it's got to be local or it's got to be this or it's got to be that or it's got to be vegan or whatever. It doesn't serve us, I mean, we're not serving ourselves well. What we're saying is, is that unless we uh, reach this hassle-on wonderful world of perfection, we're not doing well enough, we're on a journey, we're on a journey. And some people say, I don't care what the academics have said in their academic reviews, um, it doesn't matter, if some people believe in organic, that's absolutely fine. I, I have a lot of respect for that. And, uh, and I know from anecdotes that some people just will eat more fruits and vegetables and so on because they are organic, that's great. Um, yeah. but I don't think it's a question of, of, of saying, unless we're perfect, we're not doing well enough. What we should be doing is what I say should be people-centred and saying, what do actually people to, need to eat for a healthy diet from a sustainable food system using fair labour, um, and what do we need to do to deliver that? And that, that should be the focus as opposed to a particular system. We need to have a diversity of, 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 of types of food system to, to serve a diversity of needs.
2: So, do you agree with a system which is going to be controlled by big corporations I like? I
0: didn't. I didn't. say that. No, I don't agree with that. I. Ad, I, right. I, I okay. What that's I'm saying. I was saying that we need to have a diversity of systems. The problem with the big system and the big food system is that it crowds out um, other other systems, and and that's that's what's wrong about the big system.
2: Um, Thank you. Next
3: question. Um, my question is actually for Alison. Um, just coming on from the question that you asked earlier. What what is? I mean. As as a doctor I was taught almost nothing about nutrition um, in in medical school and I would say that the NHS in our inpatient units, um, I'm I'm in mental health but also in the acute hospitals, um, serves appalling food. Um, What what can Public Health England do to address that?
1: I mean um, I can't tell you over my too many years in the civil service how much time we've spent talking to the NHS about improvements in food, getting their food procurement right, getting their food sales right. You know, the NHS is an obesogenic environment. It relies a lot on money being generated out of franchises operating in the foyers, surprising amounts of money coming out of that. Um, um, and um, I think Simon Stevens is really seriously talking about it. It's the first time that we've really seen a senior NHS person try to grapple with it. So there is becoming the, the ambition to get prevention embedded in the NHS, and that includes better food procurement and food sales. Because, you know, we all know those anecdotes of sitting in a diabetes clinic only to go out, step outside the door, and realize there's, there's um, uh, a lot of sugar being vended directly outside the door of the clinic. Um, the Leadership of health professionals is really important. Um, a lot of people will complain to me, but when I say, well, have you written to your chief exec to complain, have you written to NHSE to complain, they, they say no. I, I'm a great believer in standard contracts. We would really like to see those standard healthy procurement contracts embedded into the NHS.
3: Where's the best place that we can go as individual clinical professionals to push the change in that? Because if we talk to our local hospitals, what we get is, well, we're, we're stuck with the procurement
1: well, I mean, we need, one of the things we need is the leadership to break out of those those contracts, um, and there is some negotiating negotiation beginning to happen. There is some national work beginning to happen, um, and it's it's right to Simon Stevens. You know, it, it it it. But your leadership is really important. Complaining all the time is really important. I mean, I'm often seen as the biscuit biscuit police. Happy to have that title. Um, and the point about education is really important to health professionals. There is little nutrition education in, uh, in health professionals' education. You know, if I could get one thing, please weigh patients. That'd be a great thing to do for undernutrition and overnutrition agenda. Um, and over the years, there's been there's been efforts from the Royal Colleges to get more and more nutrition education embedded. It's always this tension of what do you take out of the curriculum.
3: Um, we need to bring the modelling in as well, though, because it's one thing, it's do what I say, it's other what I do.
1: Yeah, and also we have medics who are pushing different agendas, um, which actually co- creates confusion within the system. Um, I mean, I was pleased to see in the obesity plan a bit of education talked about, so we are now working with Health Education England on a bit of education for health professionals, and that's great, it's a it's just a little step in the right direction. Hello.
3: Um, I think the language use, we use is um, very important. And I noticed several times you used the phrase adding value. And I sometimes wonder that uh, substances that are added to our food actually detracts from the value. And it, if you know of an, another phrase, that might be more appropriate for that, that type of thing.
0: You no, know, it's a good point. That, that refers to adding value for the industry. Um, it doesn't it doesn't it's it's talking about financial value Uh, it's not referring to to value I mean I uh, coined a phrase uh, in 2010 um, just value chains for nutrition which was took an industry language and uh, reoriented it you could say about environmental and and other um, other aspects as well Um, but if you say value chains for nutrition you start to think about uh, immediately it was meant to kind of make people think differently about what value was, apart from anything else, that you think, well, what does it mean for nutritional value? Um, but, uh, and then to, to think more broadly about what that word value actually means. And I have given some talks about that in the past. But if we, if we took a more holistic understanding of value, um, that would indeed uh, change the nature of the conversation. I agree.
4: Okay. Uh, can you say a bit more about what the policies would look like you You kind of talked about what's happened in in the past the kind of top down government bit the big companies taking over and then in reply to questions you seem to be saying if the system was more kind of broken up and variable and possibly if consumers really did have more power so that it was easier to rewrite contracts with big companies for what you wanted rather than being dictated by their kind of I suppose ultimately their kind of capitalist agenda. So, what would the policies look like that, that kind of enable that freer choice and a more kind of more alternatives?
0: You know, it's a good question. I think uh, policies need to happen at multiple levels. And I think the most important policy at a global level, or it applies in many countries globally, is competition policy, which is why I mentioned it. So, at the moment, um, whatever co- uh, competition policies look like, they are driven, they, the test of competition policies is whether there is competition uh, between um, retailers or between the people providing food on price. So in this country, we have a small number of supermarkets um, only, in Australia, they only have two. And yeah, it always uh, is said it's fine for competition because we can prove, and there is proof, that they're competing with each other on price. And as long, so the, def- the interpretation of competition law is, if it is enabling competition that will reduce prices for consumers, it's good competition, rather than any other type of competition. And until we change the interpretation of competition law, uh, we're not going to be able to do anything about actually reconfiguring um, the, role of, the role of the industry. And then, so there's that, there's that, that sort of big level policy. And, um, and then at the, at, the, at the ground level, I've, I've come down firmly on the side of being driven by um, outcomes. So you have to go into communities and say, what is the problem in this community? Is it that they've got sea level rise because of climate change? Is it because they've got obesity? What is, the, is, it, is it because they're really impoverished because they're working in the food system and get paid so little? and then say, okay, and then go back into the food system and say, what is it about the food system that's influencing this? And then implement policies along that chain. So I'm a believer in the sort of policy chain and not saying, not dictating from above what those policies should be. In other words, we want a diversity of policies for our diversity of of systems in, in 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 a broader framework which enables entrepreneurship and innovation in the food system as opposed to just the big food system, which is what we have dominated by now.
4: Hello, um, Lucy from Dietitians for Social Justice. Um, When we're talking about nutrition-sensitive diseases or non-communicable diseases, I think the focus is very often looking on food, but it misses the bigger picture of health. So for instance, when we talk about evidence, that often it misses the evidence that looks, for example, at racism and hypertension, that looks at the fact that diabetes is independently associated with poverty, And disadvantage even when we control for bmi and it seems to me that that reinforces the neoliberal agenda that ignores the fact that power impacts on our bodies in a corporal sense regardless of what we eat and whether we're active and i wondered if you could tell me about any work that's going on within the thinking around food that brings that into view because it seems to me that as long as we miss that bigger picture which if we look at Michael Marmot's work, the bigger picture is up to 95% of health inequalities is not explained by diet and exercise. And it seems that inadvertently, we're actually becoming in a way health denialists. So I wondered, it didn't come out in the presentation that you did. I wondered if you could say something um, about policy and indeed from Public Health England that speaks to that. You know, thanks for that question. Um, I
0: think it depends how you cut the data. I don't agree with that statement about, about the amount and that's explained by diet, because I think there's a lot explained by diet. What, what, uh, the way I, I've, I've heard this argument before, what I, how I, I interpret that, and when you actually look at all the different papers and academic studies on that, is that there's a whole load of things that are cross affecting each other. So social isolation, for example, is very important. Um, influencing what, what people are deciding to eat. So that doesn't mean that diet's not important. Diet is important in the health. It's just that it's driven by social isolation rather than the fact that there's junk food in the supermarket. Um, but the fact is, is, there is junk food in the supermarket. So you've got to look at all of those factors together um, rather than saying it's either this or it's either that. Well, I am guilty, um, and, and I agree with that until recently. Was in th- but everything was all about the food system. Everything was about food policy, food regulation. I have been on a journey myself in the last, I would say last four years, where I've realized that I was completely ignoring the social system and um, I wasn't taking enough notice of it. Uh, and I was seeing that the food system as separate to the social system. And, um, and I wasn't considering the factors which you highlight as being so important. So the agenda that I'm taking forward at the Center for Food Policy is is taking that into account by saying, if we start with understanding where people are at and people's lived experiences and why they are eating what they are eating, rather than just the typical public health approach will be to say it's food environments, it's advertising, that's it. Whereas in fact, there's a whole load of really complicated factors. For example, uh, 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 women feeling disempowered. Um, and feeling controlled by their partners or their kids and having low levels of self-esteem. That has a really important role in the fact that uh, mothers don't feel um, empowered to give their kids what they actually want to give them. Um, and uh, social isolation. I mentioned um, income. There's a whole load of social factors. So we really need to understand. Go into someone's household and say, "What is it that is influencing what they're eating?" And that means that that what that says to me is that we, as a re, as a research community, we need to be doing much better on qualitative research on just asking people why they're eating what they're eating. Now they may lie as people like to say about qualitative research, but we still understand their perception of why they're eating what they're eating, and that in itself is important. We've relied far too much on quantitative data to to drive our policy decisions, and we need to be doing much better on actually engaging with people and and taking people's perceptions really seriously so we can better understand these interactions between social forces and, and forces in the food environment. But I'd like to thank you for raising that point because I think it is a very important one. Thank you.
1: Um, Shall I just add, as I was asked for a comment, Um, I I absolutely am with you. I would not agree with that figure you quoted, um, and I would be surprised if Michael Marmot's unit would agree with it. But that aside, health equity is absolutely at the heart of what PHE does. It's within the Act of Parliament that we were set up to do. We've got a duty around all our policies to help self-accept health equity and absolutely um, obesity is socioeconomically patterned, particularly for children. It's not so much socioeconomically patterned for adults, which I think is interesting. I think there is a danger in this debate, actually, because I think if you're not careful, it leads on to say, well, it's all, it's all to do with the fe- feckless poor, and that's absolutely not the, not the situation. Um, Corinna has talked a lot about food choice, um, and this notion that we all drive our own food choices, which you, you have disputed, and I absolutely agree with your disputing, companies, um, society is driving those choices. We're not necessarily free, acting with free will in these processes. So yes, um, Public Health England takes health equity incredibly importantly highly. We have a health equity unit. I'm responsible to them for the things we do. Um, and but we undoubtedly could do better um, but you know we are limited by resource and and the um, tools we have open to us. So thank you very much for an excellent talk, very stimulating discussion and um, sorry you can't stay for the rest of it but thank you very much. Okay. Good luck with your conference next week. Thank you.